Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene, a reporter for the FT in New York. This is a new podcast where my FT colleagues and I are going to dig into the big business and financial news of the moment and get into the stories behind the headlines. From hostile takeovers to tales of C-suite intrigue, we'll have a new story for you each week. Today on our first episode, the biggest tech deal that never was. The Trump administration scuttled Broadcom's attempt to acquire rival chipmaker Qualcomm earlier this year, and it was all in the name of national security. But how did Qualcomm find itself the target of a takeover in the first place? How will the company recover after months on the defensive? And ultimately, who will own this technology that we're all carrying around in our smartphones? One day last November, President Trump stood behind a podium in the Oval Office to make an announcement. Uh, We're thrilled to welcome Broadcom Limited and its CEO, Hock Tan, to the White House to announce that Broadcom Limited is moving its headquarters from Singapore back to the United States. So I want to and then he invited Hock Tan up to the podium. Let me say, my mother could never have imagined that one day her son will be here in the Oval Office in the White House standing beside the President of the United States. Thank you. And my mother, too. (laughs) And what Hawk Tan knew standing in the Oval Office that day that most others didn't was that he was about to launch the biggest takeover the tech industry had ever seen. Now, Broadcom making major news with an unsolicited bid to acquire rival Qualcomm for more than $100 billion. That would be the biggest tech deal ever if it goes through, and that is the big if. We have this Qualcomm deal hitting the tape right now. Broadcom bidding for Qualcomm, $60 a share, $10 of that in stock. Oh, Qualcomm really did not like the idea of Broadcom even getting close to them. James Fontanella Khan covers deals in corporate finance for the FT in New York. Whenever it comes to an M&A transaction and you have two CEOs in a room, you know that you know very rarely both CEOs are going to stay on. So if you have Hock Tan in front of you, you know that you're about to you know lose your job. James, tell us about Hock Tan. Hock Tan is the CEO of, of Broadcom. He's a Malaysian native entrepreneur, but he's been a U.S. citizen for several years. He came over to study at MIT and then went on to work for HP. And from there, like there was a spinoff from HP, which, which he took over. That's how he basically built his chip empire, effectively, through a series of deals that eventually led to the creation of, of Broadcom and a $100 billion conglomerate. He's more of a deal maker than anything else in, in many ways. And, and for him, trying to buy Qualcomm was like the ultimate big deal. And, and he's incredibly feared by, by anybody who sits on the other side of him. The street loves him. People who work for him, a little less so. 
So what was it about Qualcomm that Hoktan wanted? Qualcomm is going to come out with 5G, which is the technology which will be powering our mobile phones going forward. It's going to be like game-changing, not only for mobiles, but for all kinds of other connected devices. The sort of Internet of Things. Absolutely. And so, you know, Broadcom kind of strips R&D. Here you're basically buying R&D off the shelf. And that's why I think it's important to remember that, you know, Qualcomm is sometimes like not very much loved by by investors, but they actually invent stuff that is kind of crucial to the way that, you know, everyday people kind of go about their lives. Qualcomm got started in the mid-80s in San Diego, and it was started by Owen Jacobs, who had previously worked at another semiconductor company called Linkabit. My colleague Tim Bradshaw covers tech for the FT from Los Angeles, and he's been following Qualcomm for several years from the West Coast. And he and the team from Linkabit broke out to start Qualcomm, which was short for Quality Communications, which first manifested itself, excitingly enough, in trucks. But the really big breakthrough came with the development of CDMA, which was a new type of wireless networking system in 1989. Now, CDMA today is the technology that is used in almost all of our smartphones and underpins the kind of mobile internet, but it took quite a long time to establish itself as that standard. Qualcomm is now in this very dominant position in wireless networking, and it owns not just the silicon and, and sells the, the modems and the, and the hardware that enables this, but a lot of the patents surrounding CDMA and how that works. And, and if you go to Qualcomm's headquarters, they have this huge wall that literally has every patent the company has been issued in full written and in a sort of framed certificate on the wall as you go up. And they also have this museum of the sort of progress that they see themselves as having enabled, where you go from phones in briefcases to phones that fit in your pocket and you wouldn't even know were there. Qualcomm's model is unusual in that it sells the chips in a separate division to another unit that licenses its intellectual property to use those chips. And they're kind of run as two separate business units inside Qualcomm. But the complaint from companies like Apple and some regulators in in Europe and Asia and, and, and here in the US is that they're too closely intertwined, that you can't be a customer of the chip business without also paying royalties to Qualcomm. And the allegation that Apple has made is that this has allowed Qualcomm to to overcharge for its royalties. Qualcomm has always argued that the patent licensing business is what feeds its R&D engine. They get a huge amount of profit from that, which they then plow back into engineering the next generation of chips. And that's that's how they've been able to kind of push the technology forwards. They're, They're making advances in 4G that allow 4G phones to get a lot faster every year and soon 5G. So, Tim, you mentioned Apple. What happened between Qualcomm and Apple? Apple stopped paying for Qualcomm's chips while this dispute was ongoing at the beginning of 2017. We'll pay you eventually when we've decided what the right price is, was Apple's Mm. argument. Qualcomm's argument, unsurprisingly, was like, well, we're selling you this stuff, so you should pay us now. But that went before a judge, and the judge said Apple can hold off paying until this is all resolved. Now, it could be years before that's resolved. And how did investors react as all of this was unfolding? 
So investors last year became very worried about this sort of gap in revenues that Apple had left. There is another company with which Qualcomm is also in dispute over the right royalties that it should be paying, which most people believe is Huawei, but it's never been officially confirmed that it's Huawei because these discussions are still in negotiation and they're still on friendly terms. Nobody has sued each other in that particular fight. So if I've got this right, you've potentially got two of the biggest smartphone makers in the world arguing about how much Qualcomm should actually be paid for the value of its intellectual property, for its its key profit driver. Yeah, exactly. A part of the reason, again, that Qualcomm was looking a little weakened in the last year or 18 months is that the smartphone market has kind of stopped growing, at least in many of its biggest markets. So we are approaching kind of saturation in the US and Western Europe. Even China is not growing at quite the same rate that it was. And certain markets like India, which are expected to be the kind of next big smartphone market, there's a lot more kind of infrastructure challenges to get good 4G networks deployed, for instance. So it's happening, but it's not happening at the same pace that it was in the years after 2007, when the iPhone suddenly triggered this enormous boom. And you saw Google come in, Samsung come in, and Qualcomm was able to just ride that wave because it's a big supply to Samsung. It was a big supply to all the other Android handset makers. So 5G will be very important to providing another avenue for them to sell their products. Interesting. So, Tim, you're saying that pretty soon we're going to reach a point where the smartphone market has basically matured and that it's going to be more about growth in this new area of 5G. Why did this trigger the Broadcom offer? So 5G promises to unlock the promise of the Internet of Things, where everything from cars to manufacturing and sensors in roads or in aircraft engines will all be able to kind of send out information about what they're doing all the time. And and if you thought the world was overly connected and already, then you ain't seen nothing yet. It's still very, very early days for actual deployment of all of that, but it could make the smartphone industry look like you know, just round one of what selling the chips and by extension, the intellectual property behind those chips looks like as a, as a very big business. The other thing that could happen with 5G is because it uses less power and is generally more efficient than 4G LTE that we have in our smartphones at the moment. It might mean that you don't need Wi-Fi anymore. So you wouldn't need a kind of home network. And you you may not need Bluetooth because it may be able to handle short range things. Now, a lot of that stuff is probably looking five or more years ahead. But for Broadcom, which sells Wi-Fi and Bluetooth chips to Apple in the iPhone, that looks like a sort of a potential problem on the horizon. And they have not had the decades-long cellular expertise in in 3G or 4G that Qualcomm has had that enables them to get a really strong foothold in 5G. Yeah, and in trying to get that foothold, Broadcom must have seen some of these vulnerabilities that we've been talking about and use that as a real opportunity to swoop in. Exactly. James, you said Qualcomm initially really balked at the idea of Broadcom's offer. What happened next? How did Broadcom respond? Yeah, Hoktan was like outraged and he went on the counterattack. They said, you don't want to talk to us? No problem. We'll buy a little stock in, in Qualcomm and we'll come after all of your board. We'll get rid of it. We'll put our people in the new board and then you know these people will be more open to talking with us and potentially reaching a deal. 
The federal government is hitting the pause button tonight on what could be one of the biggest and most consequential technology deals ever. Suddenly, we have a communication from CFIUS, which is the Intergovernmental Committee, which puts together the Treasury, the Pentagon, the Fence, and, and other agencies of the U.S. government. So any deal where there's a foreign company buying a U.S. company, it needs to get an approval from, from CFIUS. Eh? And basically, it emerges that like CFIUS is not happy with this deal at all. Breaking news, President Trump issuing an order saying Broadcom's proposed takeover of Qualcomm is prohibited and that any merger, acquisition, or takeover substantially equivalent to this proposed deal will be prohibited. What was at stake is simple. Like, the government was concerned that if Broadcom took over Qualcomm, cut all these costs in R&D, what would happen next is that Qualcomm would stop investing in kind of key technology in wireless telecommunications which is what makes the U.S. a leading provider of of tech around the world. And other companies, in particular Chinese companies, would step in in this space. In particular, the government is concerned about Huawei, which is considered to be kind of a corporate enemy of state. Ultimately, the U.S. would become less competitive against China. James, the president has essentially shielded Qualcomm from this takeover and possibly other foreign takeover attempts, but that doesn't mean they've solved the legal and regulatory battles that we've been talking about. Where does the company go from here? People I've spoken to told me, you know, these guys now need to buckle down and kind of start just making this company hum again. They need to focus. These M&A battles, I mean, if, if you're not really familiar, if you haven't followed these kind of hostile takeover situations, they suck the life out of you. Some of the best people on both sides worked on this deal. And I'm talking about the advisors and PR firms and so forth. And it's just like they were staying out night overnight trying to figure out, you know, ways to kind of counterattack their opponents, preparing multiple kind of war scenarios. It it distracts you incredibly from like running the company. So it's like as as a CEO and senior management, you're not thinking about "Mm, how can I deal with like X, Y, Z from an operational stand, but I'm thinking, you know, how, how can I, you know, fight against the most aggressive and successful dealmaker on the other side? I think that the clearest kind of indicator that there's a bigger problem at, at Qualcomm than, than, than maybe Hocktan exposed was this kind of somewhat bizarre story which we broke about the former chairman of, of Qualcomm, Paul Jacobs, who happens to be the son of the co-founder of Qualcomm, who had just been recently demoted from the board. It wasn't clear why or what was going on, but it clearly came out that they wanted to get rid of him. He was opposed to that. He was upset about the way the company was being run. He was also fairly scarred about the whole deal with Broadcom and the way things played out. And so he announced that he was actually looking for Global investors, SoftBank was one of the companies kind of named by us, that you know, he was looking to buy out Qualcomm, take it private. It's like I called some of my top sources and you know, when I told them I, I had been given this information, they told me, you, you, you got to be crazy. Like your sources are totally wrong. Paul Jacobs owns less than 1% of the company. So I mean, it's like you know, there's no way he can leverage that out to that level. Having said that, it's not impossible. You know, there's a lot of cheap cash out there. If you did actually have a partner like SoftBank, you know, it could be done. Very difficult, but it could be done. 
And whether we're talking about Jacobs taking the company private or Broadcom or another company trying to buy it, this is really about who gets to own the technology of the future, which global power gets the advantage with 5G. You're absolutely right. That last point is who gets to own 5G is going to have a lot of power. So from a national perspective, in terms of like sovereign nations, you have the US and China definitely want to be leading that. Why? Because if you have the best technology, you have the best military, you have basically you can exert your power on a global scale. Um, and, and, and then on, on a corporate level, who's going to be the company that develops that key technology either for the U.S. as a, as a main client, in, both on a corporate and governmental level, or a Chinese company, that, that, that's crucial because you're going to be setting the agenda for the foreseeable future. Because le- this is not like, you know, only about mobile phones anymore, as, especially, you know, we've seen in, in, in the results of, of, of Qualcomm in, in their latest quarter, where basically their market in China is, is strong, but, you know, Chinese users are not changing mobiles every kind of second week. They, they're kind of stabilizing. So they need to look for other ways to sell their chips. And you see, like, it's all about the Internet of Things. So having, like, you know, smart fridges, smart cars. And in, in the case of cars, let's not forget that Qualcomm is trying to buy NXP, which is, like, a Dutch uh, chip maker they, they spent $44 billion for that is specialized in the, in the cars and automotive sector. They're looking for ways of kind of be less dependent on the apples of this world and start servicing the General Motors or the Teslas of this world. And who owns that technology is going to be making more money than anybody else and is going to be in charge of, of, of the future of, of technology in many ways. And in the meantime, Qualcomm is ramping up for its courtroom battle with Apple. They racked up about $125 million in legal fees in the last quarter according to their earnings report out last week. And one executive even warned that that number could get bigger. So lots to watch at Qualcomm in the coming months. Thanks, James. If there's a story in the news that you think we should cover on Behind the Money, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at behindthemoneyatft.com and you can also find me on Twitter at Amy P. Keen. Special thanks to James Fontanella-Khan, Tim Bradshaw, and all of my FT colleagues who helped get this episode and series off the ground. We'll be back next week. <laughs>